A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome, everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And we'll start off um, with a couple of letters, nice letters from our listeners. Again, with the choose out from the many that come, just a couple of good ones to share with you, the excitement. So here's one. It was about the, we just finished Rosh Hashanah. We're still in the atmosphere. So we had a little bit before Rosh Hashanah an episode about traveling to the Rebbe for Rosh Hashanah. So I got the following response. Quote, regarding the episode about Hasidim traveling to the Rebbe's, I just wanted to add a story I heard from my grandfather. World War I saw Europe get carved up into many new countries as well as borders shifting. Many Hasidim suddenly found themselves in different countries than their Rebbes, and traveling to them became difficult. This was the case with the border between Hungary and Romania. In the 1930s, there was a soccer match between Hungary and Romania, and as a gesture of goodwill, the countries decided to open the borders between them for a few days surrounding the game. My grandfather remembers the trains packed with Hasidim taking advantage of this rare opportunity. Not exactly the soccer fans that the government had in mind. I looked it up and there were indeed two such games in 1936 and 1939, both in October, around the Yom Tovim season. End of letter. That's uh, it's great for a few reasons. Number one, um, first of all, thank you to the writer. Number one, because um, the, the that definitely became an issue in the interwar period, not only... Um, between uh, Hungary and Romania, even though that was a famous one, because that really cut through, straight through uh, Jewish areas, and Hasidim found themselves on one side and the Rebbe's on the other side, and there's a lot of stories about smuggling across the Rebbe's. Uh, one of the Bayana Rebbe's was like that, other Vizhna Rebbe's, other Vizhnitz, and, and other Rebbe's from that area in, in, in the Romania-Hungarian uh, border area, that murky uh area, even Czechoslovakia, further north, but um, also in other parts of Europe, and and, um, and of course the Iron Curtain was an issue going further east, and uh, people were cut off from there. We mentioned that in the Uman episode as well, so that definitely was a major issue, and we have a lot of, um, a 
lot of a lot written about that uh, that that idea that Hasidim are looking for ways to try to get to the Rebbe despite the fact that there's a sealed border. In fact, there's also a sealed border between Poland and Lithuania, and you know that wasn't much of a Rebbe issue because no one was going to Lithuania to get to the Hasidish Rebbe's because there were none. But it became an issue for the yeshiva world. The yeshivas in Lithuania were cut off from the yeshivas in Poland, even the Lithuanian area of Poland. It became an issue for relatives. In fact, there was one town that the border sliced right through the town. I forgot the name of the town. But the Jewish cemetery ended up on the other side of the town. And the government similarly gave permission for people to go to the cemetery to pray at the graves of their loved ones and people used it as an opportunity to have reunions and there were like picnics going on in the basic bars and all kinds of things like that so definitely um the the uh, utilization of uh, government goodwill to open a border was utilized uh, by jews in very wise ways as jews are always uh, want to do and the third reason why i like this letter is that it uses the opportunity for a sporting event to be able to go visit the Rebbe, and of course that's something that's used uh, in similar ways today, and people rent out the uh, sporting uh, arenas for CM Hashases and all kinds of other gatherings like that, both in Eretz Yisrael and the United States. And of course, you see Hasidim by sporting events themselves, not going to the Rebbe, just enjoying a good game. So I guess the original tradition for that was going on the train ostensibly to the soccer game in Romania, uh, but really going to the Rebbe. So that's one letter. And here's another letter about the Chavetz Chaim episode we just had for his yard site. This came in on the topic of Reb Mendel Zaks, the son-in-law of the Chavetz Chaim. Okay, I'm quoting the letter. On topic of Reb Zaks, someone once told me that they asked Reb Mendel Zaks about the apocryphal story of the Chavetz Chaim having a suitcase packed just in case Mashiach comes. Reb Zaks said... He once asked his mother-in-law about it, and she started laughing and said that her husband could barely, could barely afford one outfit. Do you think he was able to keep an extra one packed away in a suitcase? Oh, well, there goes another legend. We had an episode way back in the beginning of Jewish history, sound bites about legends uh, surrounding or involving the Chavetz Chaim. So here's uh, another one. So that's, uh, that's that letter. And um, it's interesting, you know, he definitely was a tremendous uh, believer in Mashiach coming, and it's something he constantly spoke about, especially in his later years. Almost all of his shmuzin to the yeshiva and to other visitors that he had from all over the world were in that regard. But I guess he did not have a suitcase packed away. So that's the letters. Today, tonight, we're going to, today, we're going to speak about, a little bit about the Sfasemes, um, so many people study his teachings and are inspired by his teachings and his Torah until today, and I think it's even growing today, um, the involvement that people have, and maybe i just hearing about it more Rosh Hashanah time, that people are studying his stuff around the holiday season, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, and that's, maybe that's what triggered it, so I thought of it, I thought it would be a good topic. But in any event, this Fasemis was a fascinating person, and if everyone's learning his Torah, we might as well hear a little bit about who he was as a person and how he grew up and how he came to be the great Svasemes. So Svasemes, first of all, his name was, his name itself is a story. His name, he started off as um, as um, Yehuda Leib uh, Alter. 
altar was was the name that his grandfather, the Chidushi Arim, switched to. His grandfather originally had a different name and switched to uh, to altar, the name altar. He, was, he had an issue with the government and the whole story in itself. Maybe one day when we do the Chidushi Arim, we'll speak about that. So in order to conceal his identity, and he was, you know, playing it low and safe for a while as far as the government was concerned, so he took on a new identity, and he took on the name Alter, which is the name of the Gerereba family until today. So his name is Yehuda Leib Alter, the grandson, the Svasemes, and when he gets married, he gets married to the daughter, his first marriage is to the daughter of Rabbi Yudel Kamener, so his name is Yehuda also. So here you have Yehuda and Yehuda. The Chedushi Harim was concerned about the, excuse me, the Tzavas Rabbi Yehuda HaChosid, excuse me, which um, makes an issue, I, I believe, for mystical reasons. You have to ask people who actually know what they're talking about in, uh, in these stuff, um, that you should not have the same name. The father-in-law and son-in-law should not have the same name. So instead of telling his grandson, the Svasem, the future Svasemis, not to go through with the Shidduch, he rather tells him, just change your name to Aryeh. Drop the Yehuda and change your name to Aryeh, which is a very easy way out. So he gets rid of Yehuda, and he becomes Aryeh Leib Alter. And that remains his name for many, many years. Towards the end of his life, he gets sick. And many people, when they get sick, they add a name or do a name change. So he says, you know what? Let me add on the name of my youth. By now, of course, his father-in-law had passed away. His first wife had passed away. He was married to his second wife already by this time. So he takes back his old name, but he doesn't get rid of his second name. So he lives out his later years as Yehuda Aryeh Leib Alter. So that was really his name. In fact, we referred to him as the Svasemes. Um, he was never called the Svasemes because the mass amount of teachings which were already in manuscript form by the many Hasidim and students of his, and it was passed around in Garen and Warsaw, and people studied it and learned it, but it was never actually assembled and actually published in book form with a name given to it until following his passing. And the Sefer was called Svasemes only after his passing, after it was published and gathered and edited and, and redacted and organized. Then it was called Svasemes, and that's how posterity has named him, but in his own lifetime he was never known as the Svasemes. Now, as is pretty well known, he was raised by his grandfather, the Chidushi Arim, Rabbi Shemayar Alter, um, who's really a, a fascinating story in itself, and the history of Ger, and how that developed, and of course we'll try to get there one day. But um, what happens is that the Chidushi Arim, unfortunately, had the tremendous pers- personal tragedy, almost... Uh, um, rare amongst people of his time, uh, a terrible tra- personal tragedy of losing every single child in his own lifetime. Not a single child that he had, and he had quite a few of them. He had 13 children. All of them died in his lifetime. Um, and his whole story, why? He left Kajnitz, he went to Pshischa, and every time he came back from Pshischa, and um, another child died, and he continued going to Pshischa, which makes the story even more wild. But that's really a story in itself. Um, only one child of his managed to live long enough to actually get married and have children, had a, few, a bunch of children, um, and that was Rabbi Avram Mordechai Alter. He had one son who had children, 
Avram Mordechai, who the the last Gareb before the war, the Imre Emes, was named Avram Mordechai after this son of the Chidush Yerim. And he's kind of the in-between generation, this Avram Mordechai, because he never becomes the Gareb, and yet he's the son of the Chidush Yerim and the father of the Imre Emes. So this Avram Mordechai was a young and promising um, great man, a Talmud Chacham, following in his father's footsteps, um, being a chassid of Kotsk, like his father was. His father was a friend and chassid and, uh, and close, eventually brother-in-law of the great Kotsker of Menachem Mendel Morgenstern of Kotsk. In fact, when the Simcha Bonim of Pshischa passed away in 1827, many chassidim of Pshischa thought that the Chidush Harim would then become the leader of the Pshischa Chassidim, and the Chidush Arim decided he's going to follow the Kutzker. He's going to go with him. And eventually, he only became a Rebbe for seven years, from the passing of the Kutzker in 1859 till his own passing of the Chidush Arim in 1866. So it was already at the end of his, you know, he was already older when he became the Rebbe. And they asked him, why did he make the Kutzker the Rebbe when he had the opportunity to become a Rebbe himself? And he said... In 1827, Reb Simcha Bunim of Pshischa died, I saw a light emanating from Tomashov, which is where the Kutzker started before he moved to Kutzk two years later, and I followed that light for 32 years, as is the gematria of Lave of heart. I couldn't stay away from the light that was emanating from Tomashov, from the Kutzker, and I had to follow it. So, so Rav Ram Mordechai, the son of the Chidush Arim, He's young, he's promising, and then he be, follows, he, he also dies young in his father's lifetime, very tragically. Uh, the last one of his children, the only one to reach really adulthood and have his own children. The Chidush who still lived in Warsaw, he only moved to Ger at the end of his life. He buries him in the Jewish cemetery in Warsaw, and in all our tours, all the trips I lead to Poland, we always end up in Warsaw, the Warsaw Jewish Cemetery is something... One of my favorite spots in Eastern Europe. Amazing stories. You can spend all day there and there's so much to see there. A massive cemetery. I've spoken about it quite a few times on these episodes, this podcast as well. So one of the grave sites sitting there, not far from the entrance, right near the Chemdas Shleimer, Shleimer Zalman Lifshitz, the first chief rabbi of Warsaw, is this grave of Rabbi Ram Mordechai Alter, the son of the Chedushirim, the father of the Svasemes, the Chidush it's the original Matseva that the Chidush himself designed and wrote the Nusach for. So it's a very powerful uh, uh, Matseva to see of Rabbi Mordechai. And you see that it's really crowded in there. The Chidush decided that his son has to be buried in between two Kutzker Chassidim. He belongs amongst the Chabura, the Chassidim of Kutzk. So in the Ger tradition, it is said that uh, since there was no room, the Chidush announced that room will be made for him. And they kind of left it there, and all of a sudden the next morning room was made for them. And till today you see it's kind of squeezed in. It's not like, you know, in between two gravestones, there's not really that much room, but somehow they squeezed it in. That's the Ger tradition. Other traditions say that some, you know, some people were doing some digging and moving around some gravestones, and they managed to make room between two Kutzkers. So whatever version you like, he ended up being buried between two Kutzker Hasidim, and he leaves behind a bunch of these orphans who are now raised by their grandfather, 
and the uh, the Stasemis receives a very rigorous upbringing. Um, the Chedush Arim hires a Malamed, a teacher, a private tutor, for his grandson, who's the apple of his grandfather's eye. He wants to raise him to be the next leader, the next Gerebbe, the next big Talmud Chacham, and the next real uh, Chassid. They continue the tradition of Pshischa and Kotsk to be a leader of Polish Jewry, and he trains him in from a young age. And when he's six years old, he hires this Malamed for him, and he makes, the Malamed is of course a Kotsker Chassid, and he says to the Malamed, you have three uh, rules, ground rules that should guide your job as a Malamed for my grandchild. Number one, again, he's six years old, the Svasemis at the time, the future Svasemis at the time. You should study with him 18 hours a day. Number two is you have to start before sunrise. And number three is that you have to have a chidush. You have to have a novelty, a new idea in learning every single day. Not a single day should go by where there's no chidush. I don't advise this for people who are trying to raise their own children today. Of course, one of the reasons I deal with Jewish history is because it's much easier to deal with the past than to deal with the present. And if I was in charge of having anything to do with chinuch or the present, it would be a disaster. So luckily I stay stuck in the past. In fact, I was listening to another great podcast, which I highly recommend to all of you, um, by Rabbi Ari Koretsky, uh, called Jews You Should Know. He interviews contemporary, uh, you know, prominent Jews from every type of field, from finance, social activism, rabbinical leaders, educators, uh, all kinds of very interesting people in the Jewish world today. And he was interviewing a educator for all kinds of interesting educational needs. And I was just like, blown away by the challenges of 21st century education and what children need and what the challenges are and what the opposition is against. And, and, and you know, I give a lot of credit to educators who are going to do that, and I'm happy that I'm going to stay with the history of the past. It's just, uh, I guess, more of a comfort zone. So the Svasemes um, gets this very rigorous training, and um, and he... He um, is brought to Kutsk also by his grandfather, by the Chidusha Arim. He's, he's, um, he's 12 years old when the Kutsker dies. He had been privileged to go as a child during the days when the Kutsker was actually closed off and didn't meet almost anyone. It was almost completely shut off from the world and from his Hasidim. But the Chidusha Arim, of course, was able to get in and he was able to bring his grandson, the young Svasemes, in as well. They asked the Chidush Yerim, why is he bringing such a child, young child to a place like Kutsk, which is a very intense and scary place in a way. And the Chidush Yerim said, Zoler Zen na He should see a true Jew. And that should leave an impression on him. And the Svasem has said later on in life that from his two or three visits to Kutsk, that stamped him for life as a Kutsker Chassid and made such a strong impression on him about who he was, just to see the Kutsker and bask in his presence just for a few minutes as a young child that completely transformed him. That's the exposure to someone like the Kutsker. In fact, he was once in Kutsk, and one of the interesting things about the, one of many, many interesting things about the Kutsker was that he had a policy of of not closing any windows or doors, and even though he did not uh, officially allow visitors, but it wasn't 
it was to receive visitors and to interact with them, but there were people who just hung around the house because there were no locks on any doors. There were even animals, you know, that were able to come in, bugs, and he said, I guess he was the first animal rights activist in Jewish history. But, um, but in any case, the Rebetzin of the Kutzker, the second wife of the Kutzker, um, was in the kitchen, and the young Svasemis was in the house of the Kutzker with his grandfather in this visit, and the famous Shamish of the Kutzker Fival was, um, was, uh, was, um, was there with the Rebetzin in the kitchen, and the, ki- and the Rebetzin says, there are silver spoons that are missing, someone must have stolen them. That's what the Rebetzin commented. And Fival the Shamish responds, well, everything is open, there are no locks on the door, so why shouldn't someone steal? And all of a sudden, there's a shout from the next room where the Kutzker is sitting, and he says, but Fival, you can't steal. The Torah says, loy sigzo, the Torah says, you're not allowed to steal. And the way the Kutzker said it, with such a conviction, with such a truth, with such a power, with such a force, and the whole avayda, the whole way of Kutzk was emes, was the pure, unadulterated truth unsullied truth, the pure and real and fierce and harsh truth, so it became so real that you can't steal, because the way the Kutzker said it, the message was so strong and clear that the Svasemes, who was a young child at the time, commented later that at the time, and for a long time afterwards, it literally seemed impossible, the idea of stealing. It was impossible to conceptualize the idea of actually stealing. So real did the Kutzker make it that it's impossible to steal. So when his grandfather passes on, the Svasemes is still young. He's 19 years old, and he's appointed the rabbi of the town of Ger, but he's not made the Rebbe. He himself goes along with a lot of the Pshischa Hasidim, a lot of the Ger Hasidim, to Reb Chanech of Alexander. Reb Chanech Levin, not the first Alexander Rebbe, actually was the uh, father of a different Hasidic dynasty. Alexander came from Varka, a different story. Um, the same Hasidus that produced Amshanov and other Hasidus in the story of Polish Hasidus is something we can trace in another episode. And uh, the four years, the four in-between years where the Reb Chanech Levin of Alexander is the Rebbe before the Svasemes becomes the Rebbe in 1870, and he remains the Rebbe for the next 35 years, for the rest of his life, and he really builds up the Hasidus of Ger. He it starts to grow, it becomes one of the largest Hasiduses in Poland um, by the time his passing. He builds the base Medrash in Ger. When we go to Ger today, it's one of our also our prominent stops, we see the beautiful base Medrash is still standing, the big brick, red brick building, gorgeous building, that's the building that was originally built by the Svasemis. Of course, it was refurbished. There was a fire and it was rebuilt. It was expanded by his son, the Imriyamis. But the original structure is built. He starts to receive Hasidim from all over Poland, especially from the Warsaw area. He stands when he sees Hasidim. He stands and he sees them and he speaks to each and every one for very short, short and sharp in the Pshischa Kutsk tradition, giving each one very quick and short instruction, straight and to the point, doesn't tarry. Um, he not only does he receive them standing and every single one and for a very short time, but he also refuses to take money, which was quite unique amongst Rebbe's. He supported himself throughout his life by having a store, which mainly his wife ran, 
and he refused to take any money from his Hasidim, nothing. Not only that, but he told all his Hasidim to work. And they remained a Ger tradition for quite a bit of time, that the Rebbe's worked, or their wives worked, and they told their Hasidim to work. Don't make money off of Tyra, don't make money off the Rabbinate, get a job, go and work. And they were very pretty strong-minded about it, about not taking money and about uh, working. Um, he was actually the exact opposite of his son, the Imramis. He stayed out of politics. Um, he was quite antagonistic to the Zionist movement. He was very much anti-Zionist, like many of the Rebbes of his time. In fact, uh, since he was such a prominent leader of Polish Jewry, so Herzl, Theodore Herzl, sent Nachum Sokolov to try to convince the Svasemis not to be so anti-Zionist, and Nachum Sokolov was not successful in budging the Svasemis from his position. Um, and um, uh, unfortunately, the Svasemis, almost all of his sons, children, daughters, grandchildren were killed by the Nazis eventually, two generations later. The Svasemis himself died in 1905 at the age of 57 during the Russo-Japanese War, which probably damaged his health because many of his Hasidim were drafted into the Russian army, he used to correspond with them, he used to write them letters in the trenches of the Russian army. He actually uh, slept on the floor the entire time during the Russo-Japanese War. He said, my Hasidim are in the Russian Tsarist army fighting the Japanese, living in trenches, I can't sleep in a bed. He slept on the floor that damaged his health and he died uh, at that time. Um, so that's a little bit about the Svasemes. Um, this was uh, Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com uh, for questions, comments, sources, and of course trips and tours to these places. And subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Don't miss an episode. You can follow us on Twitter at jsoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.